This is Running on Fumes, an FC Belvedere Oasis pod. Brought to you by Clorox, the official performance drink of FC Belvedere Oasis. Welcome to another episode of Running on Fumes from the Virtual High Bear. As always, I'm Keith Ponyoz, and I'm joined by the Fredo to my Michael Corleone, Dan Fallon, a.k.a. the Ombudsman. Dan, would you rather have Mohammed bin Salman own your team or a Gillette family member? <laughs> um, I, I would go with the Gillette family member. I, if, if the question was uh, Tom Hicks and any of his kids, it'd be a much tougher decision between the murderous rulers of Saudi Arabia and the potentially murderous former owners of Liverpool and the Texas Rangers. And uh, yeah, so so for those of you who aren't familiar as well, uh, Hicks's son is like campaign chairman, I think, for Der Donald uh, or something <laughs> like that. So, you know, it's it's really deciding between murderous current dictator and dictator who is hoping to be murderous future dictator of the United States, I think is really what it comes down to. And if you're wondering why the younger Hicks was hired by President Trump, um, I think you only need to know about one email that he sent to a Liverpool supporter back when they owned the club in in response to a criticism he told the Liverpool uh, supporter to suck his There you go. That's the kind of open conversation and dialogue that we, we really aim for. Uh, <laughs> next up, the Willy Wonka, Doc Brown, Johnny Appleseed, Ted Kaczynski, Che Guevara, and Mr. Peabody of American Soccer, Peter Wilt, also joining a very exclusive uh, company, uh, Amanda Klinkner and Coach Daryl Shore. You now have your own Lost Forwards Backwards podcast since we recorded one two weeks ago, and I just haven't yet made that steaming pile of ramblings that we had into something coherent. It's great to be here again. Uh, hopefully this one does not uh, join the lost generation of, of, of podcast episodes. But as I recall, that one two weeks ago was the best one ever. Uh, I don't, uh, even by our low standards, I don't know if I'd go that far. <laughs> it, did in, it did include a very long rant from Keith, which was... Yeah. Uh, I think that's mostly what needs to be edited out. It just went on for, <laughs> it went on for about 14 and a half hours. So it's a, it's a it was my, you know, I, I like to sneak in my own little dark stars, really that, that 30 minute jam of just Keith, you know, dropping <laughs> out brain thoughts and, and bringing it at people. That's what I'm aiming for. So unless it's ever posted, no one can prove me wrong that it was our best. That's one true. That's true. That's uh, the Schrodinger's theory of forwards, backwards podcast. (laughs) I think it was a good podcast as long as nobody can listen to it. I did find, or through the help of uh, um, social media, I did discover a lost uh, lower division soccer TV commercial this week. It was from 1997. Uh, Minnesota Thunder, when I was there, uh, we contracted with Periscope Advertising to produce a couple of TV spots. And uh, Dave Dickey was the uh, writer of it. And Periscope did just a phenomenal job with them. One of them has survived on YouTube. Um, and I, I've posted it every once in a while. But the other one, which featured 
one of our players, Chato Alvarado, wearing a helmet cam, a futuristic helmet cam uh, in a training session uh, with Gerard Lagos um, uh, having the ball. And then Chato was trying to track him in the commercial. And Chato was pulled backwards because the helmet cam still had a power cord attached to it. <laughs> I, I remembered most of it, uh, but when I saw it come to light again last week, uh, it was even better than, than I recalled. Uh, through social media, I asked, I tracked down um, one of the Periscope executives uh, who created it, and he had it on his Vimeo site. So um, I posted it. If you go to my um, Facebook, Instagram, or um, Twitter. Twitter. I saw it on Twitter. At Peter Wilt 5, right? Uh, one. At Peter Wilt 1. At Peter Wilt 1. Keith would have picked five for I you. I would have gone with five. You know? Even if one through four were available, <laughs> he would have just picked a random, a random digit to put at the, at the end. Uh, speaking of, Dan, what is our Twitter handle? For people who are interested. At, at forwards back wah two. Thank you. And you can follow us on the Twitter machine. We're up to, Dan, by the way, 364 followers. That's pretty good. Yeah. We're only 36 <laughs> away from, uh, uh, you know, the 400th follower takeaway. It's like coronavirus growth numbers. The, yeah. the numbers are just going up. RR, RR is definitely greater <laughs> than one. I mean, as long as you zoom back far enough, the R is exponential. We're <laughs> exponential has growth. Been, has there been any, uh, can you can you determine any uh, relation to me getting off of Twitter to the growth in Twitter followers? Uh, well, we, I think we've lost more because uh, okay. with me uh, in control of forwards back what two, I tend to call more people out. I've heard it's been getting a little aggressive uh, from our from our accounts on the Twitter on the Twitter worlds. You know, I have some thoughts. Let's put it that way. One of them is if you're if you're getting into USLD three to raise your clout, um, I think you're you're tilling the wrong field. How's that sound, Dan? <laughs> well, and particularly if you're going to, uh, you know pin a tweet that talks about, you know, how we're all in this together and we should all be supporting each other at lower league soccer and then take pot shots at a club in the middle of a pandemic for trying to sell as many possible jerseys as they can to actually generate some revenue. Um, you know, that seems to fly in the face of what their stated purpose is. Now, there, I, I do want to say that I was not just subtweeting one person because I did see okay. other people. But yes, there is a particular individual who, you know, <laughs> can, can suck a lemon. Um, <laughs> uh, Peter, uh, by the way, we have a new segment for you, Peter. Uh, since you have finished the basement, you are now up in the attic, and we're calling this uh, new segment Bats in His Belfry, Peter's Adventures in the Attic. Uh, Peter, what can you tell us? What's going on in the attic? Well, I, I did start a, a week or so ago and one of the first items I found was actually the helmet cam to the aforementioned Minnesota <laughs> Thunder <laughs> commercial. Have and you been wearing that around the house? <laughs> much to my wife's chagrin. Um, <laughs> the, the beauty of it is the, the, um, the directors and producers actually engraved the satellite dish um, to me 
and, and gifted it to me after I left Minnesota uh, to go to Chicago. So um, it's it's uh, something I will cherish uh, forever. So that Peter, was one I. Peter, can, can we honestly, you know, after you and, and your wife are both dead, can you can you put your house <laughs> into a trust and can we run it as the Peter Wilt Museum? <laughs> and all 364 of uh, your followers will will, will pay <laughs> they will flock there <laughs> they will flock there i think it'll give, i think it'll give dan and i something to do in our dotage peter keith, keith is a keith is a uh, is a tax law expert i'm sure he'll be able to turn this into some sort of a either money making or money laundering scheme that we will profit on for for many many years to come well, i would certainly bless that we're going to, we're going to set up the Peter Wilt Foundation. It's a 501c3. Uh a lot of a lot of thoughts here, but I just I have this image of that that helmet and that commercial being a fantastic exhibit at the Peter Wilt, you know, museum and and and, and uh, grilled cheese factory. If you open the museum on site, so you you keep the house and open it there, I would recommend having the public viewing area be in the basement where it's a bit cooler than in the attic. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask Peter, you're, you maybe should have flipped these around and done the attic when it was not 85 degrees. Uh, I was just thinking that. But you're, you're a wiser man than me. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think about it. To be clear, I didn't think about it until today. Peter, this is Dan's skill is jumping in after you've, you've messed up and going, yes. you know what you should have done, Peter? Yes. We all have our talents. <laughs> um, so another uh, prize item I found actually uh, today, this morning when I was up there, when I was working for the Milwaukee Admirals, I, I, I apparently came across their uh, the infancy plans for them to join the National Hockey And it was remarkable to see some of the thoughts and plans that had gone into it. Obviously, did not pan out, uh, but it's a, a, a neat little treasure uh, to have from, gosh, that would have been 1986 or 87, so over 30 years ago when NHL was on the minds of Milwaukeeans and Milwaukeeans with the means and desire because they did end up building the Bradley Center uh, as part of that plan. And the NHL really didn't start expanding until mid-late 80s. I mean, you had the original six for a long, long period of time. And then there was the World Hockey League, right? And then they merged and... Right. Well, the original six doubled in 1967-68. That's when the St. Louis Blues, LA Kings, Oakland Fields, Philadelphia Flyers, and Pittsburgh Penguins came in. Uh, and then it, 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 it continued to gradually... Uh, expand uh, kind of similar rate as I think MLS expanded. Uh, the WHA merger uh, in the mid to late 70s uh, added a number of teams as well, Edmonton and Winnipeg uh, among them. Uh, also in my attic, I found, speaking of that, um, a letter from Gordy Howe's wife, Colleen, who was pitching the Milwaukee Admirals on having Gordy uh, come in and sign autographs and visit hospitals and drop a ceremonial first puck. It included eight by 10 glossies of Gordy wearing his WHA uniform uh, with the uh, then Hartford Whalers. 
Uh, now, didn't Gordy play in like five decades of his life or something like that? Isn't that oh, his... at least maybe eight? I don't know because <laughs> I thought I thought when you said Colleen Howe, it was her pitching the Admirals on bringing back an eighty-year-old Gordy Howe to play for the team in his ninth decade of of hockey or something. He probably could have, uh, and he probably would have done well. He, of course, played with his sons Mark and Marty Howe. Uh, Mark was a Hall of Fame. Uh, caliber uh, forward um, and, and Marty had a pretty extensive NHL career as well uh, I don't know that their grandkids ever played with Gordy though anything else up there anything uh, that, that that one of the things we wanted to talk about any more Chicago fire gear did you find any more stuff you know what I found was a, a couple of uh, pint glasses from the Chicago fire world football league team <laughs> that predated the Chicago Fire MLS team. And I recall when we named the team Chicago Fire, one of our biggest concerns was actually that people would mistake it or, or get it mixed up in some fashion with the WFL team that played in Chicago in the mid-1970s. Uh, so it was, what, 20 years 25 years maybe before the the soccer team started uh but for a couple of years there the chicago fire football team did have a, a high profile uh, as it turned out you know no one mixed it up at all until <laughs> the uh, nbc tv show came on <laughs> <laughs> which you know sort of disappointingly uh, I, i'm disappointed we couldn't have gotten you know chicago fire to be about the mls team and bring back george clooney to play you I think that would have been the secret right there. Um, so the, part of the reason that we wanted to talk there, there has been some USL news and um, I'm going to oh, start talking because it's Thursday. Yeah. Well, yeah, true enough. We've got, <laughs> Peter's got nothing better to do. Uh, you know, uh, we've got nothing. He better has to, to leave do. the attic every 15 minutes. So he doesn't uh, <laughs> suffocate. <laughs> yeah. This is a wellness check on him. We, we, we yell up to the attic. <laughs> <laughs> your wife is like those two weird dudes want to check on you peter help me help me <laughs> i'm boiling uh on the good news front this is an excellent weight loss plan that you've developed you know getting up into the attic uh you're gonna make weight for the wrestling meet in two weeks <laughs> my goal is to be a jockey go. <laughs> Um, because no, in fact, horse racing apparently continued to operate. Well, they never have any spectators. That's not a big deal for them. Well, and they also apparently the uh, this was brought to, to, to my attention by my wife that the um, one of the arguments made was that the horses cannot uh, exercise themselves, um, and as finely tuned athletes, they need to get you know work off some of that energy, and so. That was the argument made. I think there was a track in Florida and another track that never, never stopped. They've been, they've been having races uh, uninterrupted. So the horses can get their daily jog in. My wife runs a, um, is a director of a a show horse Academy. And so when the uh, closures all happened in March, they stopped with their riding lessons and their, their shows uh, but the horses still needed to be fed. They still need to yeah. be groomed. They still need to be worked out. And so she kept w- working through this. 
And this week, she finally got back to actually giving lessons. They're, they're giving private lessons, but not group lessons. They're giving lessons to experienced writers, but not beginners uh, as part of the protocol to make it as safe as possible. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, the the sort of USL news that happened uh, was, first of all, Forward Madison returning to small group training. We probably don't have too much to say on that unless, Dan, you've been uh, peering through the gates with your binoculars to watch that from your east side vantage point. Uh, I have not yet. I thought about it yesterday on my jog, but it was way too hot. So I stopped jogging and walked home. Um, but the other news was Demarcus Beasley. And I think, I think my idea was better than what Demarcus has planned. Um, it, he is not going to open it uh, or start a USL league one team in Fort Worth, but rather Fort Wayne, uh, Indiana. And you have some experience predating as do I, though I can't talk about it cause it dates to my playing days, uh, with Mr. Beasley before he became, uh, you know, uh, a, the, the longest tenured U S national team player. Yeah. I, I, I traded for, uh, DeMarcus when he was 17 years old and under contract to the LA galaxy, he spent the first four years of his professional career in MLS uh, with the Chicago Fire uh, before being sold to uh, PSV Eindhoven. And so, yeah, I've known DeMarcus for more than 20 years and uh, we've kept in touch. When uh, this news was uh, floated a, a couple weeks ago about his interest in starting a team in Fort Wayne, not Fort Worth, I, uh, we connected and uh, we've messaged back a couple of times. I think you know, DeMarcus will be successful. You know, he's uh, a smart guy. He's hardworking, well-connected, especially in his hometown of Fort Wayne, Indiana. And I think that's a good market. I think uh, it has a lot of good characteristics for a successful pro soccer team. Uh, Multi-generational um residents that live in Fort Wayne that have a passion for the community that want to see it succeed. And uh, DeMarcus's involvement will obviously be important. That being said, I do believe Fort Worth is a great soccer market too. Uh, Michael <laughs> Hitchcock has done a good job with the Vaqueros there. Uh, and that's obviously a larger city that um, has its own identity separate from its twin city of, of Dallas, which I think gives it an opportunity to kind of be what the St. Paul Saints are uh, to the Twins and, and, and have success in its own right. Although I, I don't think Bees is interested in, in going that route. You know, this is like my, I, I'm not fully convinced that Miami, Inter-Miami is going to start. Uh, not fully convinced about St. Louis. You know, I, I'm not convinced that DeMarcus wants to really go to Fort Wayne and not Fort Worth. I think this remains <laughs> to be point. seen. In yeah, fact, though, you know, my, my connection to, to, to DeMarcus Beasley, I'm three or four years older than him. He was playing up, and uh, we, we played his club team uh, when I was like 16. I think uh, the Fort Wayne, uh, I think it was Stars or something like that. Uh, I will say we won for nothing. Uh, we, were, we, were, we were a solid team, but I played against DeMarcus Beasley as a, as a youth player. Um, and I liked having him around because it was like, well, there was still a guy that I had played against 
you know, still playing in pro soccer. I think, uh, Dan, as we talked about, you really start to feel old, not when you're older than the players, but when you're older than the coaches, as we are now. <laughs> yes. Not our own coach, though. Not our own gaffer. So that's good. I'm glad yeah. that Daryl Daryl's still older than me. Um, uh, but Peter, but Peter it, sounds oh, yeah. like, it sounds like there's some, you know, Fort Wayne actually has a decent soccer community as well. They've produced some other, I think, some uh, women's national team players, if I'm not mistaken. So it seems like there's also a, a good culture of youth soccer in that area. I, I first became familiar with pro soccer in Fort Wayne through the indoor team. They yeah. had uh, the, the Fort Wayne Flames of the American Indoor Soccer Association in uh, the mid-1980s. And then later, I think they changed their name to the Indiana Kick, which had a pair of mascots who were literally pro wrestlers. They, they looked <laughs> like Hawk and Animal from AWA. They had the, the Mohawk and the one had a Mohawk and the other had the reverse mohawk, uh, and that was their 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 gimmick. Um, it did do you think that? On. By the way, the, the mohawk and the reverse mohawk. Do you think that would help Dan and I? <laughs> well, Dan's got podcast. the full hawk going now, so Keith, it would be incumbent upon you to go with the faux unmohawk. What is the reverse mohawk? Is that like nothing down the middle and the sides are, are going up? And just nothing down the middle. The sides can be normal. So bald is what you're calling. That's, that's the reverse <laughs> mohawk. <laughs> that would be a reverse mohawk, indeed. Okay. Keith uh, is obviously not the marketing expert here, Peter. <laughs> You know, Mohawk and Ball doesn't have the same ring as Mohawk, reverse Mohawk. So. <laughs> um, uh, you know, uh, in your now, one of the things that uh, I wanted to ask about uh, when one of the things that Coach Shore talks about, because he helped uh, coach uh, Demarcus Beasley when he first got into the league, was that um, I believe one of his parents was an accountant, right? Uh, in in Fort Wayne when uh, DeMarcus got into the league. Is that right? Am I imagining that? Um, his father, Henry, I'm not certain what his uh, vocation was. His mother is Joetta, but I always called his mother uh, Mrs. Beasley, not because I was being very respectful, although hopefully I was, but because Mrs. Beasley was the name of the uh, the doll in the 1960s TV show Family Affair that uh, <laughs> that Buffy always carried around with her it was Mrs. Beasley. So in honor of the little doll, I always made sure I called Demarcus and Jamar's mother Mrs. Beasley. There you go. Because I was gonna I was gonna ask if if you know she was an accountant. Did you when you talked to Demarcus? Did you tell him that the way you make a million dollars in lower division soccer is start with two million? <laughs> <laughs> I, I first heard a version of that joke by uh, Bobby Hall, the NHL Hall of Famer. He said, "My wife made me a millionaire. I used to have six million. <laughs> <laughs> It's also the joke about wine is, you know, how do you, how do you become a millionaire in the wine business? You start with, you know, 2 million. Uh, but I, I think it's, 
ultimately a good thing for forward Madison as well. And I wanted to ask you about this. You know, one of the things that doesn't come up and, and now when we're looking at, you know, the struggles of lower division clubs in the, the pandemic, you know, obviously the biggest cost probably is, is player lodging and salary. But travel is a big cost, isn't it, for these lower division teams relative to their budgets? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, you, you hit on a key point there relative to their overall budgets. Uh, travel as a concern cost-wise for Major League Soccer teams is minimal uh, because of the percentage of the cost relative to the overall budget. And as you go down in levels, it becomes a, a greater percentage of the overall budget and more impactful on the success or failure financially of a team. So when you're down to third division, and if your budgets overall are somewhere between, you know, 1.5 and 2.5 million, and you have to fly to all of your away games or most of your away games, then all of a sudden the percentage of your overall budget uh, gets to be very high, you know, some upwards of, you know, 10, 15, even 20%. And so the more trips you can do by bus, uh, the more uh, helpful it will be on your overall budget. Yeah, Peter, and I remember from the early days of Forward Madison that some of the, you know, there was a feeling there were going to be a lot more teams in the league, period, and that a lot of those teams would be closer to, to Madison. And some of the you know, kind of most, uh, you know, the the worst budget projections for travel really did end up coming true, I believe, in year one, where it was almost entirely flying to away matches with the exception of Lansing. If I'm, is that the only one? That yeah, no, you're right. And now Lansing is gone. Omaha is in, which is barely within uh, travel yeah. bus distance. I, I like it. So some teams push the, the limits further. You know, I, I see it as about an eight-hour limit on yeah. how far you should go, and Omaha is uh, just about that distance. Yeah, that's probably uh, right from, around eight. Yeah. Uh, the other aspect for um, proximity for other teams in the league is the passion it will generate for the fans. If fans are able to travel to away games uh, easily by driving or, or taking a bus they'll be more into it. They'll be more passionate, energetic. Uh, and so there's that aspect of, of the fan culture that develops by having nearby teams. Well, and it helps as well um, with rivalries, right? I mean, you know, naturally Madison and Lansing necessarily don't have maybe the same rivalry as, you know, Madison and Milwaukee or, or Milwaukee and Chicago, but, you know, because we had the, the, Michigan State, Wisconsin in the background, that you saw, you know, the possibility of it becoming a rivalry, right? There was some sort of history, and then we could go there, they could come here, you know, we went there last year, beat them on their field, and, you know, if you talk to the the guys from Lansing, they were, they were peeved about that, you know, and, and that we showed up in greater numbers than they had and beat them at their field, and that's the sort of stuff you know, you can't create rivalries, true rivalries. You can't just declare we're going to be rivalries. You have to have some of that history, right? Yeah, and those rivalries are more natural uh, when the cities are closer together. And that's why the best rivalries, not just in soccer, but in all the sports, have generally been on the two coasts, especially the East Coast, 
um, yep. whether it's the Northeast or the Southeast, because of the population centers that are so nearby. You know, earlier this year when I was meeting with the uh, Queensboro FC staff, uh, I, I told them how fortunate they were because of the number of future rivalries they're going to have where their fans in large numbers will be able to, to travel uh, and they'll be in the USL championship. So whether it's these MLS reserve teams like you know, New York Red Bulls or Philadelphia Union or New England Revolution uh, or other uh, USL League One or USL championship teams on the East Coast like Hartford, uh, that will be easy to get to in a lot of cases because it's difficult for MLS reserve teams to draw many fans. Queensboro FC may have more traveling fans at a New York Red Bulls two game than yeah. Red Bulls two have. Yeah. And, and as well, you know, that, that proximity, that's a lot of, of what's grown up in, in, you know, and we saw it when uh, things came back, right. First week back in the Bundesliga, you had the river Derby, right. And that, was sort of weird because of the fan involvement not to see in an empty stadium. Um, But, you know, having that, those intermixing of of fans and and so on and so forth helps. What is your take on the um, uh, crowd noise uh, on the audio feed that uh, Fox sports one put in uh, for their classicer? Dan, do you want to take this first or do you want to? Yeah, I I can go first. So (laughs) I, uh, I found week one to be a little strange uh, of no sound or just like not piping in any music or any singing, um, particularly the, the Byron, uh, the Byron match the first week. And I'm, I'm forgetting who they played the first week. Um, it might've been union Berlin. Yeah. They, um, yeah. And um, I, I was listening to it with headphones on and I could hear birds chirping through the uh, through the uh, through the uh, the color commentators microphone, which I found very kind of unsettling, <laughs> a, a very stern reminder of what was going on. And I actually preferred it with the piped in music, the sound. I don't like being able to hear every single thing being said or yelled from the bench. If I, I don't know, it felt a little bit more normal to me. I actually, I thought it improved watching it on TV. I know not everybody agrees with that, um, but I kind of enjoyed it. Uh, point or found three. it less weird, I think I would say. I don't know about it. Enjoy it. I think I just found it less strange. Uh, first of all, uh, I'm against it because uh, it was approved, uh, advocated for by uh, the man who shall not be named on this podcast. Uh, so I'm against it just from the off uh, on that set. I liked it. Um, you know, I was helping my German. Uh, Dan, you picked up some some choice cursing on one of the microphones and sent <laughs> that, that was, along. And that was in English, clearly yeah. in English. <laughs> you know, one of the things is I just think the cur- swearing in English is just better. I don't know why. It's like... I can swear in French. I can swear, swear in Spanish. I like swearing in English because I just love the F word. Like there's no, yeah. there's no in Spanish or French, nothing that works <clears throat> quite like the F word. Though I was quite, I, I used to play pickup uh, uh, kind of five-a-side league in, in Spain and I got good at Spanish swearing. Um, I liked, I find it, found it less strange again. And we talked about this uh uh, last week with the Mingo ladies, or more formally, if you prefer, the Flamingo ladies. Um, <laughs> I, 
I've watched enough like weird soccer where all you hear is the crowd noise and things bouncing off concrete that it, I didn't find it as off-putting and odd as Dan did. What about you, Peter? What do you think? Uh, I lean towards Dan on this one. Um, and I understand there's people that think it's, it's, it's fake, it's produced. Well, of course it is, <laughs> but it, it enhances the atmosphere. What I was really impressed with was the audio engineer's ability to ramp up the noise and make it appropriate with the action on the field. They synced it almost perfectly. Yeah, there was there was someone I I I, I was on Twitter briefly over the weekend because of the uh, scandal. The, the, I, I had to I had to I had to I had to you know check in on the drip kit. Um, but somebody was saying that they were able to time up the goal kicks, like the away team was taking a goal kick and they had the home team doing the like the oh, you know or whatever it was. Um, so yeah, kudos to them. Um, but you know. We'll, we'll see. We'll see how uh, if I, I, I don't know. Did they do it at every? Did Fox do it for every match? It seemed like yeah. They they kept doing it beyond yeah. just the the classicer. Um, I I you know I don't have any deep philosophical objections. No. I do. Uh, I do in the sense that it's you know part of our gradual uh, postmodern existence declining in <laughs> fakeness and falsity and in the separation of the signified from the signifier. But n- nobody wants to listen to, to all of that. Uh, the media- and then today I saw a large video screens alongside the field that have uh, live Zoom feeds, yeah. of hundreds of fans, as if they're sitting rather large <laughs> right alongside of the field, which gave a sense that there were actually people there, kind of sort of maybe. Uh, I kind of like. I'd also seen that Jason Isbell, who who Keith and I have uh, chatted about before, did a did a show with his wife from the new um, uh, Brooklyn Bowl in Nashville, um, where they were playing on stage with a couple of camera people. But they were also did the Zoom videos, kind of all over the venue uh, that kind of rotated through. So you people were you know technically kind of at the show. Um, it was kind of interesting to see it in that setting and then see it in the Bundesliga. So. Um, uh, by the way, we should, we should give a shout out to Jason Isbell's wife, Amanda Shires, who's a, a very good musician in her own yes. right and deserves yeah. more than just being referred to as <laughs> Sorry. Jason Isbell's wife. Yep. Uh, Absolutely. Thank you, Keith. Yeah. That's why I'm here. I am, I am really the arbiter of taste of this podcast. Um, I, I, you know, I really, by the way, just to blow all that street cred out of the water, uh, what I wanted to make mention of is, did either of you guys see the Korean club that got fined for putting sex dolls in the stands? Yes. <laughs> of course I did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't, think, I don't think I would be a very good host of a Division Three U.S. soccer podcast if I hadn't seen that. <laughs> well, I do worry. You know, you're off the Twitter machine. So, yeah, but now I'm like devouring actual media. Fair enough. What is I have an, I have an athletic subscription now. Uh, well, well, and the other thing that you did that, you know, since you're off the Twitter machine, uh, I sent Dan an article, and Peter, this is the sort of weird and wondrous thing that you may be interested in, uh, from The Guardian about basically there was a real-life recreation of the Lord of the Flies uh, in, the, in the 60s, this group of kids from... Uh, a private school got so tired of the food they were being served that they decided to 
reappropriate a boat from a local fisherman and go off hunting for their own dinner uh, by fishing. And they got, you know, shipwrecked on an island. Uh, we could even call it a recreation of Gilligan's Island, though Marianne and the professor were not there. Um, and instead of like devolving into war and, 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 you know, hating each other, they actually got along famously and it worked out like really well and, and, you know, kind of counteracted the, the narrative of the Lord of the Flies. And I sent this to Dan and Dan's like, Oh yeah, I've already seen that. I'm not on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> so William, William Golding was wrong. Uh, apparently. Was. These kids, these kids lived on this Island for 15 months. they, and they had a, they kept a fire burning the whole time. They had kind of they worked in shifts, and uh, one, one kid, kid broke his leg, and they yeah. were able to like to build him some sort of a cast. And they said when they finally picked, found these kids, his leg was completely healed, no issues. Um, but as I said to Keith, the whole nice story about society and human endeavor and all these things. Then you, you get to the end of the article and these kids were missing for 15 months. They had funerals for them. They obviously were presumed dead. And um, the guy whose boat they stole still pressed charges. <laughs> and, and, and fortunately, like they, they got picked up by the son of one of Australia's richest men at the time. And yeah. so basically he got, you know, his lawyer's guns and money involved to get the, get the fishermen like paid off so he wouldn't sue the kids anymore. But going back to a point Keith made about existentialism and all that about the, the, the crowds and Peter, I, I, this, I want to direct this question to you. Um, you know, I just read an article today that was kind of like, how successful has the Bundesliga been over the last two, two weeks, three weeks, whatever. Um, where do you think the breaking point is with fans in in the stadium, not in the stadium. I mean, you know, I, I, I find it all very strange to watch matches without the fans. This kind of proves you don't necessarily need them. Um, you know, what happened, like how long can this go on? Um, well, I don't, I'm not asking for a, a finite, but like, what are your thoughts about that? Well, a couple thoughts. One is that there's a novelty to it. So in the beginning, there's going to be a pent up demand and I think viewership will be very good, perhaps even better than yeah. uh, otherwise, because right now it's the only soccer going on. Uh, yeah, they said, the first, they said the first match was, I think, in, in Germany, there were like six, there were, I think there were six million people tuned in. It was, it was like one of the highest rated um, matches they've had in uh and, but then the number was halved even the second week. It was down to yeah. three million. And fortunately, the season, you know, it's about to come to an end anyways, a natural conclusion. And so they'll, they'll get, I think, a bump again, uh, although it would have helped if uh, Dortmund yeah. would have yeah. won yeah. and kept it closer at the top. Uh, but, but I think th there'll be some continued interest. And then when the Premier League starts, I think June 17th or so, uh, that'll give – this um, virtual watching, uh, a, another big bump. So I, I think there will be enough interest to get it through this year, this season, without it becoming um, passe uh, for, for viewers and fans. Uh, and then the question comes when they start up again in the fall, is it, or will it start up in the fall? Maybe it's pushed off to the, 
the winter or even the spring of next year, what will be the residual effect? And will they be able to have any live audiences at that point? I think that the jury's still out on that. Um, what I do want to talk about, though, is the NWSL and yeah. the first American Pro Sports League uh, to, to get on the field. Um, it, to me, they're obviously they're doing a, a tournament style in Utah. Uh, all nine teams have been invited to participate. Uh, individual players can opt out uh, without penalty, as I understand. Uh, and to me, they the NWSL has gone about it in the best possible way. And by that, I don't mean the format per se, although I think it's, it's, it's a, the best they could do under the circumstances. To me, what's made it great is the process. It was a collaborative process where they included the players in coming up with the solution. And you see some of the struggles with the other leagues, you know, yeah. Major League Baseball maybe the most high profile of it, but, you know, soccer has leagues that are struggling with, finding the best way forward as well. And to me, it's because they've, instead of working together, it's one side coming up with their proposal, shooting it across and saying, what do you guys think? And then it goes back and forth. I don't think that's the best way to get to the end product. Yeah, I agree. And I think the, the Premier League is a good example of, you know, a month ago, I was pretty... I, I didn't think they were going to figure out a way to get back. I think, I, I think they owe a lot to the Bundesliga, which, you know, because they were doing exactly what you you're criticizing Peter is that it was basically the owners of the clubs were meeting and making all the decisions and not really involving the players at all in the, you know, until they absolutely had to. Um, and you could see that the players resented the fact that they were being used in that way. And, um, and they, and the, and the players know that they'll be the targets of, of the animosity that'll come with, you know, if they start playing again and there's, and there's positive tests and, you know, you're taking doctors to the stadiums, like they're not going to, you know, it's a lot easier to yell at, 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 uh, you know, Troy Deeney than it is to yell at, you know, whoever the heck owns Watford. I don't even know, but, um, so I totally John anymore. It's not, yeah, it's not Elton John. Um, but I, so I totally agree with you that I, I, I give the NWSL a lot of credit and also offering players the option not to play. Um, because under this, under this arrangement, that means leaving your families. It means, you know, leaving behind partners and kids. And, um, well, know, and that's that, one that's, of the things as well that they negotiated in was that athletes can come with their kids uh, and bring caregivers along if they have those uh, as well. Um, Peter, you know, one of the things that I think has helped the popularity of the NBA um, is, you know, Adam Silver has kind of taken a different approach to being a commissioner um, than, you know, we see, I think, in, in the NFL and, and so on and so forth, that it's more of a collaborative approach, you know, that there's more of a, I don't want to say, less of a top-down model, but more of that, you know, uh, model that you're kind of pointing towards. And I wonder to what extent the NWSL can use this new sort of model as a draw for the league as a whole, that, hey, this is a league that is not being run like the NFL, right? Where, right. 
like MLB, that this is a good thing for them going forward, not just as, you know, that they're getting back on the field and that, you know, they're going to get some exposure from that, but as a way long-term of thinking about it as an alternative to, you know, the way other leagues are being run because it's more of a a collaborative spirit. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's what all these leagues need to look at. Uh, You know, we we as, as human beings are structured to think of things in the short term uh, or maybe the, the near short, short term, a year or two years out, we're in an unprecedented territory now. And I don't think it's in anyone's best interest to make these decisions based on what's going to be good for the business for the next month, three months, or six months, or nine months. I think, and it's easy for me to say because I'm not one, but I think owners in these sports leagues should be willing to take financial sacrifices, big financial sacrifices, in order to do a couple of things. One is stabilize the life, I was going to say lifestyle, but more than that, just the lives of the athletes, the employees, and the maybe the, the, the secondary uh, staff and businesses that are indirectly impacted by these sports to, to get them going in, in a safe way, uh, but we'll get these people back on their feet. And then secondarily, do so in order to keep the sport in, in these leagues top of mind uh, to the fans. Um, if they go dark and, and don't play for a year, there can be a big step backwards that may be difficult to get the momentum back. And in the NWSL's case, which was, you know, the nature of your question, they're coming off such strong momentum from last year and the World Cup victory and the great crowds they had when they came back that they are at real risk of losing all of that momentum if they field and keep a public face in some fashion and I think those are the lessons that the other leagues need to take uh, is the importance of showing that you're working together that you're making some sacrifices you know um, I think they've made it pretty clear with the NWSL that they're not anticipating being profitable out of this tournament they, they recognize that there's a, a, a a short-term business loss, but in the long-term, it's important for the athletes, the staffs, and the fans. And it, and it you know, yeah, as you said, keeps that momentum going. Now, on a, on a slightly, uh, well, related to that, um, you know, I think one of the things that, that the last, you know, decades have proved, and somewhat cynically, I would point to a great book uh, by Thomas Frank called Commodify Your Descent. It's probably a little dated now. It's 20 years old. Um, talking about how ethics and, and the company's ethical position can be used for marketing. Um, but to kind of shift from these serious topics, one of the things that's coming out of this is this kind of unique NWSL uh, short-term tournament. And as you're kind of an outside-of-the-box thinker, I imagine you've had some some ideas for tournaments and stuff that uh, may be slightly different than, you know, uh, just (laughs) the standard setup of, of, you know, playoffs. Well, when um, 
you know, I was involved in the startup of WPS. And for our playoff structure that first year, and this might be something that one of these leagues may want to institute, uh, instead of a traditional playoff format, we used uh, the bowling stair-step playoff approach. I think it was uh, six teams made the postseason. Um, the uh, sixth-place team played the fifth-place team. The winner advanced to play the fourth. The winner of that played the third, second, and first. Um, and as it turned out, actually, I think we might have done it with four teams. The, the last-place team – or the lowest seed rather, actually won. And uh, the, the theory behind that is that um, the first place team actually got rusty because they didn't have competitive matches until the end. They only had to win one game, whereas the fourth place team had to win three, but uh, they, they, they got a little rusty in between. Um, that being said, it's different. Uh, there's a certain advantage that you do get by uh, being a, a higher seed. And it's just another way of looking at it. You, you can poke holes in pretty much any format. The one NWSL is using, I believe out of the nine teams, eight teams are going to advance to the, ne- the next round. So it's, it's, it's going to be kind of fun or interesting. You know, people compared it to the last kid picked on the playground. when They're, they're selecting teams. Uh, but I, I think they'll get a strong interest from uh, viewers across the country. Yeah, I saw, I don't remember which league it was. Um, it was a professional league in Europe. I think that's going to potentially to figure out league, league standings. They were talking about having the teams kind of near each other have to play. And it could be like, you know, if you're three or more points ahead of that team, that team only needs to draw where the other team has to win. And, you know, so there's some creative ideas out there, I think, for, for how you settle some of these leagues that are already in progress. And then the NWSL coming up with a, with an idea for kind of a standalone tournament um, that, you know, they could also go with your, your method, Peter, of playing with multiple soccer balls on the field. (laughs) Um, I, you know, I, I, I personally would like to see that uh, in the Premier League. Larger goals, more soccer balls, increased that, scoring. Pe- Pele was a big fan of the larger goals at one point, wasn't he? <laughs> Especially as he got older. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I was going to yeah. say, I think that was right after uh, Banks uh, saved that that header that he had where he sprawled across the goal on the far post, the so-called uh, greatest, Gordon Banks with the greatest save of all time ever, ever recorded. Um, uh, not, leave it to the British to always think that uh, everything they've done in soccer is the greatest thing that's ever happened. <laughs> that's why we have a strictly no British people on this podcast uh, <laughs> policy. Uh, I did also, you know, the other thing I kind of thought about is, you know, one of uh, Bill Simmons, I think is the one that's always promoted this for the NBA is the teams that don't qualify for the playoffs. You put them in like a NCAA tournament style where it's single elimination like over a weekend or a couple of weekends like people would watch that right and i think the the, you know you can look at similar things you know i think a lot of people would love if you know you have a single elimination tournament people would get on board with that you might watch that you know uh even as like a warm-up for the mlb season you know i think people would watch a bracket like that i mean and then the other thing that you can get going is gambling and you know (laughs) that's really the most important thing when in doubt, throw money at it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Always go to gambling. 
Peter, uh, you know, any last uh, last thoughts that you have here today? Uh, we've covered, I think, quite a bit of stuff and uh, appreciate your time. It's really a much better podcast when we do even the minimum of, of planning, don't you think? I suppose it'll be even better if you edit the best of this down to maybe, I don't know, 30, 45 seconds. Yeah, I, I think so. Just us laughing, like three jokes that were pretty good. <laughs> you should just do you, all the entire podcast should just be me quoting Tom Hicks Jr.'s uh, email to that <laughs> Liverpool fan. I <laughs> uh, want to turn it over, by the way. We're adding a new segment since he does this anyway. We're going to turn it into a segment where he's the Tony Reality now of the Forwards Backwards podcast. <laughs> Dan, what did I screw up today? Um, wait, is this like Stat Boy? Do some people probably don't even remember that Tony Reality? Yeah, used that's to be... exactly it. You're Stat Boy. I mean, gosh, that was when I was in college that he was <laughs> Stat Boy. I think. Uh, no, I mean, I guess my only thing, you know, you, 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 we've already alluded to it no, numerous times, but in the prep email for today, Keith uh, said that uh, Mr. Beasley, son of Mrs. Beasley, um, was starting a club in Fort Worth, and Peter and I both chimed in at pretty much at the same time and said, uh, Fort Wayne. So no, actually, that, you were several minutes late, Dan, to the point that uh, I replied, is there an echo in here? I'm going to blame that on Google's, you know, threading of emails and all that. But um, so that would be my only my only uh, stat, stat boy. <laughs> I'm, I'm just doing I'm doing it. I'm doing it for the hashtag clout, Dan. Uh, <laughs> what, Demarcus Beasley to Fort Worth. You hear, heard it here first. <laughs> not a bad idea he could be kind of the manchester city group where he has teams in every fort city oh, in man. the world i think fort leavenworth fort campbell uh i think they're 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 probably global forts is there a fort, fort in australia Tom. okay oh certainly well the edmonton soccer team has played a couple of their games out of market at, I want to say it's Fort Williams. I may have the wrong fort, but there is a fort that has hosted pro soccer in uh, Alberta. We'll have to uh, we'll have to check in with uh, Cowboy Neil at the wheel. I believe he's a former Edmonton uh, player. What's the name of the Edmonton team, Peter? Uh, I knew you were going there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I wanted to make a Rough Riders joke. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the old Edmonton team there was the Drillers. Uh, this one was, I believe, just Edmonton FC, and they kind of, as a nickname, were called the Eddies. Uh, I like. I, I think they should go with the Rough Riders. Until next time, we say forwards, not backwards, upwards, not forwards, and always twirling, twirling, twirling towards freedom. <laughs> <laughs>